0: This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Pinky Show, Counterspin, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, The Progressive, and The Young Turks, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Rachel Maddow Show.
1: Good. Good morning, landlocked Central Asia. Landlocked, landlocked. A country that just has other countries on all of its borders, no coastline at all. We are waging a war, about to start our 10th year of war in a country that is landlocked. Waging a war, of course, takes a lot of big stuff. Some of that stuff you can load onto really big planes and get into the country by air. But not all of it. Not having a port, not being able to ship anything in is a real logistical pain. You really can't rely on airlifts for everything. There's going to have to be some shipping. There's going to have to be some trucking. Well here's what some of that looks like for our decade of landlocked war in Central Asia right now. These are NATO vehicles loaded under the back of big, awesome, colorful Pakistani jingle trucks. Uh, Those NATO vehicles on their way to the war over land. This is how we get a lot of our stuff to war. Ships can't go to Afghanistan because it's landlocked and they can't go to the closest ports, which are in Iran because, you know, Iran. Uh, So they go to Karachi, they go to Pakistan. Uh, They go to Karachi and then the stuff gets taken off of ships put on trucks, and then it gets driven all the way across Pakistan, all the way to the northwest corner there you see there in Pakistan, the Khyber Pass, and then they cross over into Afghanistan or onto Kabul or whatever. That is how we supply the U.S. military. In year 10 of our war in landlocked Afghanistan. And today, the Pakistani government cut that supply line off. Our supply lines for this war are that fragile, that stretched out, that thin, and today, cut off. It happened because of the thing we do not call a war in Pakistan. We talk about our war in Afghanistan, our war in Iraq, but then there's other war we're involved in that we don't really have simple language for anymore. The Bush administration said it was the war on terror, the war on terrorism, the global war on terrorism. That language is now used less by the Obama administration, but we are still waging it still all the same. The idea is that fighting terrorism is something that has to happen in a way that's almost post-national. That terrorist groups aren't countries, they span different countries, they can move around. So if you're gonna fight a war against terrorists who want to launch attacks on Americans, it has to be a global war, a war anywhere on Earth. Countries don't really matter. But countries do matter, borders do matter. They matter as much to anyone else in the world as they do to us. And apparently now Pakistan is over us. They are over us acting like the war on people who happen to live in Pakistan, even though we don't say it's a war on Pakistan. is starting to feel like a war on Pakistan. Our flying robots, our planes without pilots, our drones are firing more missiles into Pakistan than ever before. Recently it's been about one airstrike a day. But it is not just the pace of those remote control bombings picking up. This weekend there were also three different airstrikes in which US helicopters with pilots flew into Pakistan and launched strikes there. The US said it was okay to do that because they were in hot pursuit of people who had shot at Americans in Afghanistan. And they said the hot pursuit rules let them do that. Pakistan says there are no hot pursuit rules. Pakistan says we never agreed to that. You actually have to stay out of our country. And then, two days ago, New York Times reported that General Petraeus warned Pakistan that the US could just start unilateral ground operations inside their country. That we could just send American troops marching into Pakistan. We could? General Petraeus reportedly warning Pakistan of that. Maybe he should warn us. Then at roughly 5.30 in the morning this morning, local time, not only did U.S. helicopters fly again into Pakistan again, they flew into Pakistan and shot at what everyone now admits uh, were Pakistani soldiers at a frontier outpost. Three of them killed, three injured, border post destroyed. Then a few hours later, we hit another one. NATO issued a statement of sincere condolences to those injured and killed. And the government of the country in which those men were killed, The government of the real, live, actual place with a name in which we are waging a war that we will only say is global, that we won't say is there in that specific place, that country's government retaliated against us by cutting off our supply route to the 100,000 American troops next door.
2: If you are being attacked, so are you fighting a war or are you in war together?
1: Are you fighting a war or are you in war together? as Pakistan's uh, foreign minister. Pakistan's foreign minister also told reporters about the US today this, quote, we will have to see whether we are allies or enemies. It is the idea of a global war on terrorism that transcends countries, right? Our, Our idea is about fighting terrorists regardless of where they are. Transcending countries, transcending national boundaries. But you know, if the United States decides that where it wants to fight happens to be in your country, the idea of what we're doing may transcend national boundaries, but the fighting doesn't. The fighting happens in specific places. If what's going on with this escalation that no one is talking about is that the war in Afghanistan is sort of officially expanding into Pakistan, then this isn't just ho-hum another chapter in the global war that's everywhere. This is Laos and Cambodia 1970. I don't care if people wanna talk about AFPAC like it's a single place, about Pakistan being an extension of the existing war. What this really is, is war in another country. It is another war. Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. And no matter how much we like to say, oh, we're just here to help, you know what? They do not want us there. And so it's ultimately going to be a war not with, but against, against a country that has got a government, that has got an army, that has got a population of over 160 million people, more than half the population of our country. They've also got a global diaspora of people from there all over the world who will in some sense think of their country as in a war with America. And oh yeah, Pakistan has nuclear weapons. What it seems like is going on right now is that the U.S. is testing, U.S. officials and U.S. military leaders are testing the idea of the war in Afghanistan being expanded into Pakistan, and they're doing it quietly. But they're talking about it as if it's unavoidable, as if it's some natural extension of what it is we're already doing in the other war. If that is what's happening, if that is what's happening, if they are test driving, floating this idea of the war expanding into Pakistan, it is not a secret, and it is not going to be a secret, I guarantee it. I don't plan on being quiet about it. In fact, I plan on screaming bloody murder about it.
3: You've seen all those yellow sticker ribbons people put on their cars that, say, support our troops? Well, I don't know. For some reason, they make me feel kind of uncomfortable. Maybe it's because the logic seems sort of upside down. I mean, I don't think most young people go and join the military for a chance to kill and die in some weird colonial war. I think most of them probably sign up to defend their country or to get money to go to college and stuff like that. But then they do get shipped off to do the dirty work of empire building. And all of a sudden, you see all these Support Our Troops ribbons pop up as a way to create support for the empire building itself. Doesn't that seem dishonest? Isn't that a form of exploitation? Anyway, I decided to make my own ribbon in support of our troops. I made it say... Reject U.S. imperialism. I thought about it for a long time and I honestly believe that that's a real thing we can do in order to really support our troops. But now I'm kind of afraid of sticking it on my car.
4: says U.S. media are too negative. When it comes to Afghan civilian casualties of the U.S.-NATO war, the U.S. corporate press's glass is always half full. Take the headlines from a single day, October 13th. The London Guardian has a story, Afghan civilian war injuries double in Kandahar conflict on the news that the number of Afghan civilians hospitalized for serious war wounds has doubled in 12 months in Kandahar, the focus of Operation Dragon Strike, an ongoing U.S.-led campaign against Taliban strongholds. That day's USA Today has a piece on civilian casualties, too, headlined, Civilian Casualties in Afghanistan Fall Sharply which celebrates, apropos of nothing in particular, that the number of civilians killed or injured by coalition airstrikes has dropped over the past several years, according to coalition statistics. Which approach you prefer might depend on whether or not you want to feel good or know what's going on.
0: If you're like most Americans, then the politics of the last 30 years has driven you to the point where you're totally ready to pack up and move to Canada. Or maybe New Zealand, because it looked beautiful in Lord of the Rings. In any case, you're totally serious about it this time, and you're going. Well, you're in luck, because with GoToMeeting, you can work from anywhere and still meet with clients and coworkers online while sharing your screen with one or many people all at once. Visit gotomeeting.com and use the promo code podcast for a 45-day free trial. You could be settled in your new Vancouver home and join Socialized Medicine before you had to pay a dime. That's gotomeeting.com promo code podcast for this special 45-day free trial.
5: Your next quote is, Micheline, is somebody who went out on a press tour to sell his book and rehabilitate his image.
6: I'm, I'm not a hater. I didn't hate Conway West.
5: <laughs> so who, despite all the provocations we've given him, is ready to forgive all who misunderestimated him? <laughs> That's George W. Bush. It is George W. Bush. I I know some of you young kids out there won't believe this, but that folksy guy on your TV this week, the one with the weird beef with Kanye West, he used to be president. (laughs) Mr. Bush launched his presidential memoir tour with a carefully choreographed interview in the Today Show. He told Matt Lauer that, quote, the most disgusting moment of his presidency, unquote, the very worst thing that happened during all eight years was when Kanye West called him a racist. And everybody felt bad. Even Kanye West came out to apologize. And just as he started to speak, Iraq jumped up and said, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> <laughs> you were bad, but I was the worst disaster of all time.
2: <laughs> well, that's what, you know, the worst moment of his presidency was that, that somebody said something bad about him. And I remember that he was asked what the best moment of his presidency was during his, during his presidency and he said it was catching this big fish right in his pond back home so his presidency was just like sort of right in the middle
5: of nowhere wasn't <laughs> yeah. it yeah his entire eight years of presidency the highlights and low the light, lowlights it's like some guy's average week you know <laughs> well i caught a fish and then some guy said something mean about me and that's it that was everything else is encompassed between them i guess
1: I think I am finally coming around to realizing it. I think there is no soft peddling it. I am not going to get an interview with George W. Bush. No matter how I promise to hold the book, or say the name of it, or talk about it in any sort of terms in order to promote the sales of the, book. it's not going to happen. His first interview was with Matt Lauer. His second interview was with Oprah Winfrey. His third interview was with Rush Limbaugh. His fourth interview was with Sean Hannity. His fifth interview was Again, with Sean Hannity. His sixth interview will be with Bill O'Reilly. His seventh interview will be with Greta Van Susteren. His eighth interview will be with Candy Crowley of CNN. That'll be this weekend. His ninth interview will be with CBS Sunday morning. His tenth interview will be with Fox & Friends. His eleventh interview will be with Jay Leno. I am not on this list. And I did not win the Facebook contest to try to get an interview with him. I do not think that I am going to get an interview with George W. Bush. And I... I'm reluctantly coming to accept that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm still going to lay out what I think is the central question posed by his book uh, in the hopes that maybe he will just drop by here at MSNBC one day and decide he wants to chat because he's enjoying all these other interviews. Without nitpicking, without, without even, even talking, uh, to- talking about doing a, a full fact check or, or following every decision point. Uh, going down every rabbit hole. Even without drilling into this, there is one giant glaring thing in the book that's wrong. And it's wrong even if you only consult George W. Bush himself on its veracity. Even if you don't use outside sources. It is the central issue of his presidency. It is the central decision point, if you will, on the central issue of his presidency. And he gets it wrong in the book. Giantly, hugely, ostentatiously provably, provenly, wrong. Here's the problem. We all know that before we invaded Iraq, Mr. Bush's case for invading Iraq was that there were weapons of mass destruction, right?
7: Right now, Iraq is expanding and improving facilities that were used for the production of biological weapons. Saddam Hussein is harboring terrorists and the instruments of terror, the instruments of mass death and destruction. We cannot wait for the final proof smoking gun that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud our intelligence officials estimate that saddam hussein had the materials to produce as much as 500 tons of sarin mustard and vx nerve agent intelligence gathered by this and other governments leaves no doubt that the Iraqi regime continues to possess and conceal some of the most lethal weapons ever devised
1: except for all the doubt Uh, We also all know, uh, including President Bush himself knowing, uh, that when he assigned a study group to look for weapons of mass destruction after we invaded, the Iraq study group found nothing. If, If you're George W. Bush now, say, writing a book, you don't even have to go back and read the big old boring report of the Iraq study group. You can just read your own transcripts.
7: We have not found stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction. We did not find the stockpiles. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. Nope, no weapons over there. Maybe under here. Iraq did not have the weapons that our intelligence believed were there.
1: After the weapons of mass destruction thing was debunked, George W. Bush not only said it was debunked, he then changed his stated rationale for the war. Now, he wouldn't have to do that if the weapons thing still stood, right? I mean, why change your argument and start saying it's about all kinds of new stuff that's not weapons if you could keep counting on the old weapons argument that you'd used in the first place? After the weapons issue was disproven and George W. Bush admitted it, the president stopped talking about weapons and he instead brought up all kinds of new arguments for why we invaded Iraq. He argued that we had to invade Iraq because Saddam was committing fraud in the UN oil for food program, you may recall.
7: Saddam was systematically gaming the system. Using the UN oil for food program to try to influence countries and companies in an effort to undermine sanctions.
1: See, it wasn't weapons, it was that George W. Bush was interested in ensuring the integrity of UN programs and was willing to back up the integrity of those UN programs with the might of the US military, yeah. Uh, Then he argued that we had to invade Iraq to create democracy.
7: Advancing the cause of freedom and democracy in the Middle East begins with ensuring the success of a free Iraq.
1: He also tried the argument that we had to invade Iraq in order to save Iraq's women.
7: As the citizens of Afghanistan and Iraq seize the moment, their example will send a message of hope throughout a vital region. Young women across the Middle East will hear the message that their day of equality and justice is coming.
1: Mr. Bush also then argued that we had to invade Iraq in order, this is novel, uh, to get new allies.
7: The goal in Iraq and Afghanistan is for there to be democratic and free countries who are allies in the war on terror. That's the goal.
1: Whatever you think about the we invaded because of the oil for food program and we invaded for the women and we invaded because we needed allies. Whatever you think about the individual merit of these retroactive rationales for starting the war that we heard from George W. Bush after he started the war. Whatever you think of each of those arguments, the bare fact remains, just in pure logical terms, that we would not have all those retroactive rationales if the reason President Bush said we had to start the war in the first place had held up.
7: Iraq did not have the weapons.
1: Right, Iraq did not have the weapons, and George W. Bush knew it and admitted it, and therefore changed the explanation for why we had to go to war. George W. Bush in his own recent history, in just the last few years, admitted that weapons of mass destruction were not why we went to Iraq. He's admitted it, except in his new book he regresses, despite admitting it over and over and over again. Before, despite changing his rationales for the war to account for the fact that he couldn't talk about weapons anymore, and now we're back to weapons again. Now we're back to pre-Iraq war Bush again saying that removing Saddam from power was the right decision for all the difficulties that followed America is safer without a homicidal dictator pursuing WMD. Pursuing WMD. Saddam Hussein was not pursuing WMD. We know it. George Bush knows it and admitted it before, but he's back to making that case again in this book. Now, this is in the book that came out today. That's why George Bush feels good about the Iraq invasion despite everything else that happened. I know he's the past president. I know this is a book tour. I know I'm never going to get to ask him this directly, and I know we're a different country now. But we're a different country now. Are we supposed to fall for this
4: again? It's something unattainable that you can't live without.
8: Look, uh, uh, do you have a TV? Maybe if you use it to watch things on it. But, you know, you've been seeing a lot of an old favorite recently. George W. Bush is out promoting his new memoir, Taking Confession with Matthew Lauer, playing a little cash cab with Sean Hannity, and sitting down with our pal Oprah Winfrey. And this is actually a shocker. Oprah had everyone reach under their seats, and they all learned they've all been deployed to Iraq. Everybody. You're going to Ramadi. You're going to. You're going to. All right. I guess the big question is How's two years of contemplation and reflection Changed our former president I poisoned Dorothy's uh, goldfish By pouring vodka in the fish bowl <laughs> 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 Sir, the, the, the question was The inspectors in the Dulfer report Found no weapons in Iraq <laughs> I don't know how you got to that anecdote He's like, you know, I got to tell you, he's like an old pair of slippers, this guy. You know what I mean? Like a gift that you didn't particularly want. (laughs) Wasn't really a good fit. Started a war between your pants and your shirt. But, you know, (laughs) you had them for eight years, and that's something. In hindsight, they did keep your feet slightly warmer than... Nah, f*** it, I never liked those slippers. (laughs) The point he wants to get across is that we should all go out and buy his new memoir, If I Did It. No, that's not, right. that's not right. So, what actually has he learned with two years' perspective out of office? What are, what are his feelings on the mission accomplished banner? You've got to have some fascinating kind of hindsight there.
7: But you stood under that banner and it sent a very yeah. strong message no mission question. accomplished. No question. No question. It was a mistake. If I had to do it over again, which you don't get to do when you're the president, you know, have said, good going, men and women. Great mission.
8: Or something, I don't know. I think he might be the commander of Matthew's unit. <laughs> two years, the guy had two years. Two years. Two years to ponder a question you knew was gonna be asked and the best you could come up with is, yeah, yeah good going there, men and women there, great mission or something. Uh, Happy Veterans Day or, you know, whatever. It's insights like that and others you can find in the president. New memoir. America, the book. No, I don't think that's it. That's that's not it. I don't know why that keeps happening. Memoirs are by their nature self-serving. You get to create the parameters by which you want history to judge you. Don't sell your soul for the sake of politics.
7: Have a set of principles that are inviolate. Defend those principles no matter what it might cost you. The key thing in life for me was to know that I didn't compromise principle.
8: Refused to compromise principle, the hallmark of the Bush presidency, no matter what. You may have disagreed with him, but he never compromised his principles.
7: So the decision point here is, do you adhere to your philosophy and say, let them all fail? Free market. Yeah, free market. Or do you take taxpayers' money and inject it into the system in hopes that you prevent a depression? And I chose the latter. Yeah, you're right that, I, you know, I abandoned the free market
8: to save the free market I system. I did. I did. So there's, uh, I guess, the one principle you kind of did abandon was capitalism. (laughs) But of course we'd all agree that sometimes even principle takes a back seat to the rule of law. Why is waterboarding legal, in your opinion? Because the lawyer
7: said it was legal. Using those techniques saved lives. My job was to protect
8: America, and I did. (laughs) Why why did he do that? Because that's what a leader does. When lives are in danger, you ask your lawyers to tell you what are the limits <laughs> of the law to do what needs to be done. It's the same thing with Katrina. Uh, actually, remind me again why we didn't send troops into Louisiana to save American lives. By
7: law, the president cannot send federal troops in to conduct law enforcement without a declaration of, of insurrection and or a request from the governor.
8: Rules are rules. <laughs> <laughs> Your lawyer's allowed waterboarding, but going in to rescue hurricane victims, yeah, we're not going there. (laughs) I think your lawyer's just like seeing people underwater. Who's your law firm? Jacobian Aquaman? (laughs) Perhaps. How long have we been doing the show? I have not vomited once. (laughs) This is, I gotta tell you. This is the energy level that I'm going to do the show from now on for the rest of my career. (laughs) He's gonna come out here like this, hey, what's up? (laughs) Perhaps what's most striking about these interviews is that President Bush seems to have achieved an eerie calm after presiding over maybe one of the most turbulent periods in American history, although there was one absolutely just terrible incident that haunts him to this day.
9: About a week after the storm hit,
7: NBC aired a telethon. Yes. Asking for help for the victims of Katrina. And at one part of the evening, I introduced Kanye West. Were you watching? Nope. you remember what he said? Yes, I do. Call called me a racist. It's not true, and it was one of the most disgusting moments of my presidency.
8: <laughs> Kanye West. <laughs> Kanye West. <laughs> As with any rap battle, obviously,
9: <laughs> when
8: one participant drops a diss track, the rival is now invited to pick up the mic and respond, so. After the Bush interview, Kanye got interviewed by Matt Lauer and responded.
3: I would tell George Bush in my moment of frustration, I didn't have the grounds to call him a racist. You know what?
8: Well in, sir. Nicely done. Got him to apologize. I thought that was a very, actually a very reasonable apology. Now, but this obviously can't get done. Lauer's got to call the president, get him back on the Today Show, show him Kanye's apology, and then try and solidify a lasting peace agreement. We as human beings don't always choose the right words,
10: and that's why I'm here. He
8: seems to have
2: regret. What's your reaction? To that? Well, I, I appreciate that. Does your faith allow you to forgive
10: Kanye oh, West? Oh, absolutely.
2: Of
7: course it does. And uh, I, I, I didn't. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a, hater.
9: <laughs> uh, not
8: a hater. I have, I have occasionally, on occasion, uh, uh, hate, hated the player, but but never the game. <laughs> game. Lauer just squashed a beef. If Only Lauer had been around to broker the peace accord between Bush Sr. and Biggie Smalls. (laughs) Maybe the CIA wouldn't have taken out... I'm sorry, I'm being told that I cannot say that (laughs) the CIA had no connection to the death of Biggie Smalls. As far as we know. Anyway, it's historic moments like these that found deep inside the pages of George Bush's new tell-all memoir, if I may. Precious, based on the novel.
0: You can support this show at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon after clicking through to their site using the Amazon banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through using that banner once and then bookmark that page to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, but Amazon will donate around 7-8% of your order to this show without adding a dime to your bill. This doesn't take much effort on your part and costs you nothing, but makes a huge difference supporting the show. Thanks so much for your help.
2: Bobby, it is amazing. In two short years, we've seen the Congress go from, at least the House of Representatives, go from a sweeping Democratic majority to a Republican majority. And in the same week, adding sort of insult to injury, George W. Bush is on his book tour, sort of rehabilitating his image. And, and one of the things he has confirmed is that it wasn't Dick Cheney. It was his decision to authorize and approve waterboarding. He wants to set the record straight. Well, good on him, he's being honest.
6: And this comes right on the tail of the WikiLeaks, which document this horrific history of of torture, of prisoners, of Iraqi prisoners, by private contractors, mercenaries, essentially, in the employ of the American government, something that has long been against our history. We considered it horrific, that the Hessians, that the... That the British were hiring Hessians to fight against us. That was something that was completely antithetical to the kind of high ideals, you know, and patriotism that we felt was just part of good behavior by nations. And the torture issue is something that is worth really, you know, dissecting, Dave, because Bush describes in his book how he was specifically asked by the CIA while they had Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in custody. They were wondering how far they should go and they had to call him up to get his authorization. And he was asked at that point, should we waterboard Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? And he boastfully says in his autobiography, my reply was damn right. Okay. And this is the kind of cowboy, you know, stuff that has an appeal to, you know, people who, you know, are, Kind of, we're dumb as we want to be—that part of um, of his constituency. But it's completely inconsistent with America's ideals, America's history. Bush says, "Well, we had to do this because we're, you know, we're in this terrible danger after nine But you know, Dave, you and I were raised at a time when we were in much greater danger than we have been any time since nine eleven or since the end of the Cold War. We were raised doing duck and cover drills. There was 10,000 to 25,000 nuclear tipped warheads pointed at our country, each one capable of vaporizing an entire city. The launch sequences were in the hands, not just of one person, but a number of people in the Kremlin. So there was a, you know, we were extremely vulnerable, but we didn't torture people. We didn't eavesdrop illegally on hundreds of thousands of our citizens. During the Revolutionary War, Washington was actually confronted with this issue and was asked by his officers about torturing a British officer who had strategic information. He said, I would rather be live back under the tyranny of the monarch of England, of King George, than to bring such shame upon our cause and upon our nation. And at that time, the British were torturing to death, hundreds of Americans daily in prison ships and coffin ships in in New York Harbor. But he wouldn't do it. And he he passed down through his military standards for the highest, most humane treatment of uh, prisoners of war. And as a result of those, the Hessians that he captured on New Year's Day in Trenton, after three weeks in American captivity, they agreed, they were so shocked by the good treatment they'd received at the hands of their captors that they agreed to walk unguarded all the way to prison camps in Western Pennsylvania and not a single one escaped. During the Civil War, Lincoln again confronted the same issue and Lincoln was so horrified by the prospect of Americans torturing people and what it would do to the morality of our country and our people that he ordered a commission created to compile a, a protocols uh, for fair treatment of prisoners of war and 80 years later that document that Lincoln ordered created became the Geneva Convention so our nation quite rightly was the the mother of the Geneva Convention in the World War II President Eisenhower again while the Nazis were torturing everybody they could get their hands on president eisenhower was confronted again with the same issue and he said no we're going to treat them the way that we would want to be treated and during world war two german soldiers surrendered by the thousands to american soldiers because they had been told by their parents who fought in world war, by their fathers who fought in world war one always surrender to an american because americans don't torture people this has been part of our heritage part of our ideals and unfortunately we had a white house who ran on the idea of you know american ideals and values but had no clue about the historical context of our values had so little context and so little connection to the history of American values, that they were able to depart from them so readily at the drop of a hat.
2: And Bobby, it's fair to say that you know we grew up, as you said, with duck and cover. We also grew up with the Geneva Conventions. We understood what they were. We understood that America was a party to them and had chosen to be a part of a community of nations that rejected torture. And here's here's George W. Bush now. After the fact, two years later, justifying it, he was asked by Matt Lauer why is waterboarding legal and his only reply is because the lawyer said it's legal it's almost unthinkable that it reminds me of richard nixon saying you know if the president does it therefore it's right therefore it's legal it's the same attitude
6: waterboarding has been illegal in this country for over a hundred years it's been illegal in the various state laws that specifically Forbid it. We've had back in the early part of this century, we had a Texas warden from a prison who was sentenced to life imprisonment for waterboarding prisoners. After World War II, we executed Japanese officers who had presided over waterboarding of American prisoners. So there's no doubt that it's illegal. There's no doubt that it was torture. This is the whole problem with the Bush administration, is they never did due diligence on anything. And, you know, you the, the Bush administration, now you talk to these people, they all say, well, you know, we thought there were weapons of mass destruction, and, you know, so you can't blame us. But, you know, that's what a president is supposed to do. You're supposed to do a due diligence. You're supposed to ask, could there any be other, any other use for these cylinders other than, you know, for manufacturing nuclear weapons? Are the yellow cake documents, are they forged? Did the supposed associations between Osama bin Laden and, and Saddam Hussein <laughs> were those associations obtained by torturing a prisoner who had, was already compliant, but said that they didn't exist until we tortured him and, t- and said, you got to say this.
2: Or so invented can... by people who had an agenda to try and link the two. People who, right. who wanted to get us involved in Iraq and therefore made a case that was completely false on its merits.
11: Finally, George W. Bush's book tour is reminding us of the softball journalism that his administration often enjoyed. USA Today's front page feature told readers that Bush smiles and laughs readily and that there's no hint of annoyance when he's asked, quote, how he copes with the ridicule that hasn't abated much since he left office, close quote. Well, that's a relief. Or take Matt Lauer's November 9th NBC interview. Early on, Lauer said this, quote, The Florida recount, hanging chads, a divided Supreme Court, George Bush had a rough road to the White House, Close quote. We're not sure how a guy who lost the popular vote and made it to the White House thanks to the Supreme Court suffered a rough road, but he certainly faced little in the way of rough questioning from Matt Lauer. On the Iraq War, Lauer said that Bush, quote, "...eventually decided to go to war based on Saddam Hussein's defiance and what seemed to be rock-solid intelligence," close quote that Iraqi defiance included allowing U.N. weapons inspectors in the country who left only when the U.S. bombing started. Claims about rock-solid intelligence conveniently obscure the fact that there were plenty of questions about the intelligence at the time. And about the failure to find WMDs, Bush is being widely quoted saying that he, quote, "...had a sickening feeling every time I thought about it." Close quote. Huh. Huh. We can remember Bush at a gathering of journalists in March 2004 cracking jokes about looking for Iraqi weapons around the White House. The bit even included a slideshow. The reporters in attendance roared with laughter. The media outlets that will convey Bush's regrets about the Iraq debacle now aren't likely to recall his comedy routine. It would make him look bad, and them too.
0: a year, a little discount for you. Please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
9: George W. Bush better stay at home. The confessed waterboarder is a marked man. If he travels abroad, other countries can and should nab him for the crime of torture. In his memoir and on his book tour, Bush acknowledged ordering waterboarding. Damn right I authorized it, he bragged to one interviewer. Well, that's a big confession right there. Attorney General Eric Holder has recognized waterboarding as torture, so he's got an obligation to press charges now against the former president but neither Holder nor his boss has the guts to do that, I imagine, and what a shame that is. Prosecutors in other countries, however, may not be so spineless. Under international law, says Amnesty, anyone involved in torture must be brought to justice, and that does not exclude former President George W. Bush, the group said. And if the U.S. doesn't do it, Other states must step in, says the human rights group. Under the Geneva Conventions, any country that's ratified the Accords has a binding obligation to exercise jurisdiction over those who have committed grave breaches. And waterboarding is a grave breach. So if I were Bush, and what a horrifying thought that is, I'd cancel those plans to visit Spain or Germany or any other country where some prosecutor somewhere respects international law.
2: Got no place to go there's a girl waiting for me down in Mexico. She got a bottle of tequila,
6: a bottle of gin. And if I bring a little music, I can fit right in. We got airplane rides, we got California drowning out the window side. We got big black cars, and we got stories how we slept with all the movie
11: stars. Amazing. In Spain. my wings behind me
1: We begin tonight with trouble at home for one of the top Republicans in the country Unforeseen, but now here Trouble on a grand scale for the leader of the Republican Party in the United States Senate As Mitch McConnell prepares to bring his Senate minority back to Washington after the weekend, this editorial in his hometown newspaper is staring him in the face. Look at this, McConnell's True Colors. This is from Louisville's Courier Journal newspaper. The paper is denouncing their home state senator, the top Republican in the Senate, for what they call, quote, contemptible hypocrisy. What is this all about? It is about this, actually. Uh, Decision Points, the new memoir from George W. Bush that has just been released. Um, This is definitely not James Thurber, and I am definitely not trying to be Keith, uh, but I do actually have to read out of this book for just a second, so please forgive me, okay? Uh, Page... Uh, 355, start of chapter 12. In September 2006, with the midterm elections approaching, my friend Mitch McConnell came to the Oval Office. The senior senator from Kentucky had asked to see me alone. Mitch has a sharp political nose, and he smelled trouble. Mr. President, he said, your unpopularity is going to cost us control of the Congress. Mitch had a point, Bush writes. Many Americans were tired of my presidency. But that wasn't the only reason our party was in trouble, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Well, Mitch, I asked, what do you want me to do about it? Mr. President, he said, bring some troops home from Iraq. Bring some troops home from Iraq. And of course, because this is George W. Bush's own book, this is what he quotes himself as having said back to Senator McConnell after that rather astonishing exchange. Mitch, I said, I believe our presence in Iraq is necessary to protect America, and I will not withdraw troops unless military conditions warrant. I made it clear I would set troop levels to achieve victory in Iraq, not victory at the polls. Which is sort of really as much as much of a taste as you need about how George W. Bush portrays himself in his new book. Uh, but w- what is important here is not George Bush's own incredibly healthy view of his own ethics, his sharp memory, and his perfect elocution and ending sentences with the word "weren't." Uh, what's important here is is what he says, what this book says about the man who's now head of the Republican Party in the Senate. According to President Bush, Mitch McConnell told him to bring some troops home from Iraq so Republicans wouldn't lose control of Congress in that year's elections, so Republicans could win in the 2006 midterms. Mitch McConnell telling George Bush he wants him to draw down troops in the middle of the war so Republicans could do better in the elections. Wow. Mitch McConnell, it should be noted, is not denying this. Uh, We spoke with his office today. We will have more on that in a moment. Um, But because he is not denying it, this is what we're left with. While Mitch McConnell was telling President Bush in private to pull troops out of Iraq, not for any national security reason, but for political reasons, because it would be good for the Republican Party in the midterms, while he was saying that to the president, lobbying for that in private, here's what he was saying in public about Democrats' efforts to get President Bush to withdraw troops.
7: General Abizade had it correct when he said if we leave Iraq, they'll follow us. They'll come back here. So cutting and running is not a strategy for protecting the American people uh, here in the United States.
1: Cutting and running. See, Democrats want to cut and run from Iraq. That was September 2006, September 5th to be specific. September 5th, 2006, Mitch McConnell excoriating Democrats for even suggesting that President Bush might pull out troops from Iraq. According to President Bush, it was that same month, September 2006, that Mitch McConnell was arguing with him privately to pull troops out of Iraq because, quote, your unpopularity is going to cost us control of the Congress. Just a month before Mitch McConnell told that to President Bush, Democrats in Congress wrote a letter to the president. That letter said in part, quote, the open-ended commitment in Iraq that you have embraced cannot and, should, cannot and should not be sustained. We need to take a new direction. The Democrats were asking President Bush to begin pulling troops out of Iraq on national security and fiscal grounds. Mitch McConnell was privately arguing the same thing except on political grounds. Privately, he was arguing the same thing that Democrats were arguing. Privately, he was also asking for troops to be taken out of Iraq. Privately, that's what he was doing. But in public? Quote, the Democrat leadership finally agrees on something. Unfortunately, it's retreat, leaving Americans more vulnerable and Iraqis at the mercy of Al Qaeda. So in public, Mitch McConnell was essentially calling Democrats all but appeasers of Al Qaeda, for them wanting to withdraw troops from Iraq. At the same time, he was telling George W. Bush in private that he wanted to withdraw troops from Iraq because it would be good for the Republicans in the elections. Again, that meeting with President Bush, where Mitch McConnell is saying pull out troops, that happened September 2006. Here's Mitch McConnell on September 6th, 2006.
7: They want to attack Rumsfeld because they apparently don't have the courage to stand up and offer amendments uh, to implement what they'd really like to do, which is to get out.
1: See, Democrats just want to get out. While he was saying that publicly, privately, he was telling President George W. Bush the exact same thing, because he thought it would help Republicans in the elections. This is, a, this is an incredible story. On September 3rd, 2006, Mitch McConnell appeared on the CBS Sunday show Face the Nation. The guest right before him that day was Democratic Party Chairman Howard Dean.
8: The Democrats want a new direction in our defense policy. We want to fight the war on terror. We don't think that the Iraq war uh, is the right way to fight the war on terror because it simply was no, has nothing to do with the war on terror.
1: Asked to respond to the plan that Howard Dean laid out there, shifting resources out of Iraq, Mitch McConnell, that day, said, quote, their plan is to leave. What they'll do is cut and run in Iraq. People need to remember what Democrats do when they're in the majority. They'll wave the white flag in the war on terror. Mitch McConnell was saying that in public the same month he was encouraging President Bush in private to, what does he call it? Wave the white flag in the war on terror? Cut and run? He was encouraging President Bush in private to pull out troops. Why did he want to do it? Because it would help Republicans in the upcoming elections, he thought. We called Senator McConnell's office today to find out why he was saying one thing in public and one totally different thing in private. I would also love to discuss with him whether or not he thinks it will help the Republicans in an election is a good basis on which to make national security decisions about American men and women in wartime. Mitch McConnell's office gave us this statement, quote, Senator McConnell does not comment on any advice he may have given the president on improving the president's political standing. But the public record is clear on his unwavering support for ensuring that our troops in the field were fully funded and that General Petraeus was able to execute a counterinsurgency strategy on the ground in Iraq free of arbitrary deadlines for withdrawal even when it was politically unpopular to do so. Does it count as an arbitrary deadline if it's before the elections? And as for whether or not the public record is clear, yeah, that's not the point. The public record is very clear. The problem is that what you were doing in public is the opposite of what you were doing in private, in private with the president, excoriating everyone in public for making the same case that you were making in private, except other people making that case said they wanted the war ended for national security reasons. You told the president you wanted the war ended to help your political party regardless of what was good for the country. As I said, Mitch McConnell is not at this point denying this charge laid against him by George W. Bush in Mr. Bush's new book. If Mr. McConnell does end up denying this, he will have to effectively call George W. Bush a liar to do so. As The Courier Journal puts it in their editorial, "Quote, unless he is prepared to call a former president of his own party a liar, Mr. McConnell has a choice. He can admit that he did not actually believe the Iraq mission was vital to American security, regardless of what he said at the time. Or he can explain why the, why the fortunes of the Republican Party are of greater importance than the safety of the United States. Again, that's Mr. McConnell's hometown paper. The initial reaction um, on our staff to finding this thing about Mitch McConnell and George W. Bush's book? It's right at the beginning of a chapter. It's sort of a showcase moment in the book. The initial reaction on the staff was, ooh, George W. Bush is throwing Mitch McConnell into the bus, using and abusing McConnell to show that he, George Bush, didn't bow to craven politics of people like Mitch McConnell. But with Mr. McConnell, so if you think about it that way, our reaction was, oh, obviously Mitch McConnell will deny this and say this didn't happen. You don't get thrown under the bus like that. Oh yeah, I was the craven guy who wanted to, you know, forget national security because we wanted to do what was good for us in the elections. But with Mitch McConnell not denying this account, this is now a huge story. We've just been through a midterm election that was not really at all about foreign policy and national security. Those were not the main topics of discussion, and actually it was an election that had very little to do with Mitch McConnell. He was not a starring figure in these elections either. But we are about to start a whole new session of Congress on Monday, and this scandal puts Mitch McConnell and, frankly, national security right back in the middle of everything. He's not
3: necessarily trying to say I can't be trusted yet, but someone plays it tricks on that kid and Certain situations scream for deviations But somehow we always get stuck In the middle of
10: this and that And man, he should try less Every time he's rejected, man, he loses affection
1: But don't we all, don't we just gotta give a little time Maybe give up in the call Instead of making him confused What a terrible thing for you
7: To do What a
5: what for you
10: to relay It's the START treaty. Uh, the Republicans, uh, led by John Kyle, basically said, no, we're not going to give you the START treaty. Now, the START treaty uh, reduces our uh, stockpile of nuclear weapons, uh, but it's a treaty with the Russians, and that means they also reduce their stockpile Uh, Plus, on top of that, uh, we get to verify that they're reducing it, and we get to check in on their nuclear program. It is enormously important for national security. Look, one of the things that uh, we should be most concerned about is whether terrorists get their hands on nukes. There's no more serious national security issue. It is, in my opinion, the national security issue. And what would help is if we were able to keep an eye on the Russian stockpile. And because the Republicans are going to block this, we won't be able to. Now we, I, you know, we did this on the MSNBC show that's on at three o'clock Eastern every day. You can check that out uh, through November. And we had Josh trevino who's a guy I like, who's a conservative, but I, I think he's an honest guy, etc. And we were debating whether the Republicans had any valid uh, reason to block this treaty. And you know me—if they come up with a good point, I, I'm. Hey, I am the most open-minded man in America. But seriously, I would very much consider it. There are no good points on this. He is talking about, oh, well, now, you know, we need to be able to do missile defense tests. We do plenty of that, and the a, and a treaty would still allow for plenty of that. That ain't the problem. Look, you know, I've talked about this before. Of course, the main thing is they just, just want to block Obama, Right. And they want to say, ha ha, you didn't get your foreign policy victory. And we don't give a damn what happens about national security because we're Republicans. And all we care about is politics. And there's no way I'm backing away from that. That is 99.8% of the explanation. The only other 0.2% of the explanation that's possible is that they actually want to build more nukes because the Republican Party gets financed by the defense contractors that build nukes. Okay, so they still can make a lot of money. So, but there is no part of this uh, treaty where you could make a legitimate argument saying that it's not a good treaty. No way, no how. To give you a sense of it, the Republicans that are out of office, like every former Republican Secretary of State, is saying, uh, for the love of God, pass the treaty. Okay, uh, Richard Luger, who's the one guy in foreign policy that I've always thought was good. On the Republican side, I've been saying that for eight years now, to some people's annoyance. And he's coming out and saying, "Oh, come on, this is—we re- got to pass the treaty. This is crazy." But the Republicans don't give a damn. And look, you know, I guess people think this is like, like, wow. Like if I say it on TV, and which I did today, they're like, "Whoa, wow! Oh, how can you say whoa whoa, 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 whoa?" No, 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 no. They're politicians. Look, Democrats do this too in other contexts, but in this case, the Republicans. You think they care about the policy? Come on! Please don't tell me you're that naive. You think they care about? Oh no, it's a national security issue. We better make sure we got the loose nukes under control. No, all they care about is the politics and the campaign contributions. They're not honest actors. Stop treating the politicians with all this reverence. They should have no reverence. They certainly don't deserve it. And what the Republicans did today—it's it's, it's loathsome, loathsome. You know, there's one other thing, by the way. There's another angle to this. Can they really stop the START treaty altogether? I don't think so, right? I think in the long run, they're going to give in anyway, right? But it's not that they're going to give in. Now, right now, they only have 41 senators. They're going to get six more senators after the next year. And they're delaying the vote, right? So they're saying we're going to have it the year after. Now, if they do that, then they're going to come to Obama. Because you need two-thirds to ratify the treaty. You can't do it with just the Democratic senators. It's even more of a higher standard than a filibuster, right? So then Obama's going to need, I think, 14 Republicans to vote with him next year. So then John Kyle and others are going to come by and go, all right, we'll vote for the START treaty if you give us what we want. And then they're going to ask for a king's ransom. Again, would you ask for a king's ransom if, you know, you cared about national security? No, but if you wanted to hold national security hostage... So you can get your goodies. Well, then I would make you a politician. And that apparently is almost the entire Republican Party. Dick Luger is a definite exception, Senator from Indiana in this case. Now, there is some good news here. President Obama, the White House right now signaling, we're gonna hold the vote anyway. Okay? Which I think would be great. Now let's see if they follow through on that. But basically, they're gonna put the Republicans on the spot and say, Really? Okay, we're going to call your bluff. Go ahead and vote against the START treaty. And then we'll take it to the American people. Now, look, I'm doing this based on experience. My guess is that even if the Democrats did that, that they wouldn't have good follow through. Like, if you do that, and I love it, and I hope they do do it. You have to follow through and then beat them up in the press and be like, oh, the Republicans who don't care about national security, the Republicans who are endangering our security, the Republicans that have, are allowing loose nukes on the – do you think Obama's got the guts and the, and the ability to do that? I hope so, and it's a good sign that he's saying that they're going to hold a vote. I would be surprised, but Mr. President, let's go up and at him. This, this is how politics works. If they're gonna screw you on this for political reasons, you better fight back. You're you're on excellent policy ground here, and I'm sure a great majority of Americans would agree with the president on this issue. Well, if you don't take it to them on this, well, you ain't ever gonna take it to them.
12: This is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Um, Listen to the education episode about teacher evaluation. Um, That's really, really hard to do right. Um, I totally agree with the concept of evaluating teachers, but um, it is so easy to take a broad brush and get a totally deceptive view of what's going on. Uh, One of the uh, clips talked about two teachers in classrooms right across from each other. Great, but you know, was one of these a special ed classroom? Was one of these the senior teacher who specifically said, hey, give me all the kids that are struggling because I know how to work with them and I can at least get them through. And yeah, my test scores are gonna suck relative to yours because I passed the cream of the crop on, but I'm gonna do better by these kids. Is that how the school district set up the system? Without actually looking at details like this, you get a really, really deceptive look at teacher performance. And that's only test scores. You know, you only have the students that you're given to work with. And, you know, there are not a whole lot of kids that come through. They from class to class. They vary from year to year. It's uh, it's incredibly difficult to get an, a, a real uh, evaluation of the teacher's scores. And it would be a great tool to have if somebody was doing a good, legitimate job of ranking and letting you know who are the good teachers, who are the bad teachers, who, are the, bad teachers, who are the bad teachers have to work on. But from my perspective, the the methods that are being used today are horribly complicit to the point they're going to get bad results and being applied in really uneven and poorly thought through ways. Um, yeah, there's my thoughts. Uh, continue with the best of the left, Jay. We love you.
13: Hi, Jay. This is Daniel. I'm from, uh, Los Angeles, California, and I'm calling in in response to a caller from this week. Um, about the fairness of grading teachers off of testing. Um, I found it interesting, I've heard this a number of times, and I find it strange that students are uh, considered fair for students to be graded off testing, but not teachers. So maybe if this is considered an unfair thing to do, we should look at it and say, maybe we should ratify the entire system because we know that it doesn't work well and that a lot of students do very poorly who shouldn't be, and maybe that way the, the new grading scale will be used and the teachers can be, you know, happy with how they're being graded, and the students can as well, and maybe we can come up with a better answer to what we're doing right now. So this is just a thought. Um, I'd love to hear responses on it, and thank you.
14: Hi, Jay, this is Michael from Glen Burnie. Um, I just wanted to call and comment on your November thirteenth episode about uh, not all beliefs are created equally. Basically, I just wanted to comment on on uh, uh, the, the caller that you responded to in your comments, saying that uh, you know religion isn't the problem; people are the problem. And while I agree with him, um, you know, in principle, I think religions can be the problem though uh, but I think anything can be a problem and ultimately he, he's, he's right in the sense that people are behind everything that, that happens in this world and a lot of times things like religion or politics or whatever is just the excuse to do something uh, or or the justification at least um, and I, I always point to an episode of the South Park where Cartman went into the future and all religion was wiped from the face of the planet thanks to Richard Dawkins and um and uh you know now they had battling factions of atheists all battling over which which term they wanted to define themselves by as atheists you know and and i think that's a perfect uh picture for human nature you know if we if we get rid of our differences or get past one set of differences we'll find another set to divide ourselves on and that's the human nature that we need to fight um, and I think what Sam Harris was talking about on his uh, and on that segment from The Daily Show is important in fighting that and finding universal morality that we can all agree upon that we can that we can uh, look to when certain things go go on. Um, so that's basically all I had to say. Um, I, I really enjoy your show and wanted to just say thanks again for everything that you do. Take care.
12: I'm Mike from Los Angeles, and uh, a new listener, and I very much like the the podcast. It is the star of my iPod. I'd like to respond to a recent caller. Uh, He was the one who questioned the value of of education. He was from a family of educators, had uh, a big family. He had five uh, siblings, and... He'd noted that even though he had dropped out of high school, he was doing the best economically of the six kids. Well, first I want to say, good for him. He sounds very exceptional. Um, but what I wanted to point out was that the, the caller equated uh, an education only with economic success. Uh, gee, I, I think that only trade schools that advertise on daytime tv uh equate the totality of education with getting a job and making a lot of money uh most most colleges most universities uh consider that they are about much more than that and then the second part where he's saying gee i i'm i'm doing a lot better economically than my college educated siblings well i think that probably says more about him as an individual then it says about what's typical. You know, it, it made me think of the Winston Churchill situation. You know, Winston Churchill was obese. He drank a lot. He smoked cigars, and he lived to be 90 years old. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're obese, you drink a lot, you smoke cigars, you're going to live a longer life. In fact, it makes it harder to live a long life. And similarly, if you don't make it through high school, it probably makes it harder, not easier, um, to live a good life in adulthood. Well, that's it for me. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, activist call to action, or for the holidays, if you'd like to suggest charities that people should donate to this year, the number to dial is 206 202 3410. And I've particularly been enjoying the comments on education that have been coming in. Uh, It's nice that people have ideas they want to express. Uh, As I said during the education show itself, you know, this is—it's a topic that's kind of out of my league. I don't have great ideas. I don't know uh, which which way we should go. But I know that lots of uh, teachers and professors listen to this show. I hear from you guys uh, on occasion, and uh, and so it, you know if you're calling in and leaving a, a message along those lines, then at least know that they're being heard by some people actually working within the system. So that's nice to know at least. My take, the, my kind of ten thousand foot take on the whole education thing is is that, you know, it's so much of a cultural issue. You know, the the factor that makes the biggest difference by far is, you know, parental involvement. And that's, parents probably get involved based on how much they feel like they should, how much pressure they feel by kind of society. That, like, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, if you've been keeping up on the news, you know we're in the middle of a culture war here, people. And, <laughs> but the funny thing about it is, it a lot of the times it only it feels like only one side is fighting the uh, cultural conservatives the uh pro religion anti uh you know intellectual wing of society are waging a culture war and uh and so it's always important to remember fight the other side of that battle so to me it almost seems as if we were to uh, heavily promote education as an incredibly important thing in our families, in our lives, in our society, the details would begin to work themselves out to some extent. Obviously, we need to put a lot of effort and a lot of thought in into the actual measures that we put in place to, to move forward. Uh, but more than anything, I think the biggest impact is just how much value do we put on education and move together as a society, putting that at a very high priority. A little bit on the generic side, I know, but those are my thoughts on it. I feel like those sorts of things need to be said more often, so I did. Now, before I go, I just want to thank a couple of members. Kenneth C. signed up uh, for a monthly membership back on August 22nd and went ahead and went above and beyond just a little bit uh, to uh, to help out the show a little bit more. And Karen T signed up for a membership on September 15th and went ahead and did a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Kenneth and Karen and all the members who make the show possible. Of course, all of you, every single one of you can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. They will thank you for suggesting it to them. They will enjoy the show just as much as you do. Stay tuned into the show between episodes and help spread the word to your friends online by following us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
11: black and white Who took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room The shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out It's just a fond farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm like. It's just a fond-